This is the Real Estate Addicts Podcast, Episode 6, with your hosts, Ray Herto, HRV Homes. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. All right, guys. So we're actually doing this uh, with no guests today. We're doing a little Q&A session. So thanks, everybody, for submitting your questions. Hopefully, we can get through them all and, and get you some good answers. So let's just kind of kick it off. Actually, before we kick it off. Let's not kick it just, off. Just to let everyone know, before we started here, Ray and I actually had some documents we needed notarized, and Mark notarized them for us because he is a notary public. Can we hear that notary uh, sound oh, one yeah. more time for the audio there? Is that the same as the lightning round sound effect? No, no, just give uh, us the actual, little click. Oh, get your stamper. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the uh, assist on our, our documents here. So, And uh, good shout out there, Dan. That was good. So yeah, D- Mark is a notary public, and his services are for hire, for free. <laughs> so let's go <laughs> let's to question into the one. questions. <laughs> Any advice on how to deal with community groups and win them over? I've had them flip out at me and threaten lawyers. I would say that one is a very open-ended question because you can't just go out there and start throwing money at people. But I think what you need to do is listen to what their main concerns are and try to be proactive in addressing those concerns. So the biggest thing is, you know, first thing, don't obviously propose a skyscraper in a residential neighborhood. So try to be realistic with what you're proposing Try to understand if the concerns are more along the aesthetics of the building. Will it fit in with the neighborhood? Is the concern around parking? Is the concern around some of the density? Is it around what the building looks like or some of the landscaping? Try to basically focus on what their concerns are and propose a solution to address it. I guess my takeaway is I I agree with most of what you said, Ray, but I agree with not trying to overbuild for the particular lot you're in, but I don't necessarily a- agree with the try to build a building that will fit into the neighborhood. I mean, Mark, you've built some pretty modern-looking buildings in neighborhoods that have homes that are over 100 years old. So a lot of the homes in the neighborhoods that we build in are very old, but I think that if you do it right, you can build a beautiful build, modern building that fits in with the neighborhood. So I think just to build on a couple things I heard there, first strategy that I like is to Ray said be proactive, and by that I mean think of the concerns that may come up and take the words out of their mouth. Try to have a slide which addresses it. If you think that height is going to be a sensitive issue, then render the building in the context of the street and say, some may bring up that this has an extra half a story. However, we've mansarded the roof. We've stepped it back from the street. Here's a sightline drawing of someone's perspective from so far away. Secondly, listening. Bring a clipboard, stand up there with a notebook. As someone talks, write down their question, actively listen. And then when you come to the next meeting, bring something that addresses it. Last month, Dan asked me about this. And so I talked to my geotechnical engineer and here's what we found out. I think another thing that people miss often is that they don't do the easy things right. So if it's the winter and you're going through zoning and there's a snowstorm, shovel the snow. Don't let trash build up outside. Yeah, be a good neighbor, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or if it's an or if you have an existing building, hold the needing in the building. These are small things that are indicative of how you will develop the lot. Everyone knows that construction can be a nuisance. So if you can't even shovel the snow before you start construction, how will you handle 12 different trades on the site at once? Another thing I advocate for strongly is what I call kitchen table diplomacy. 
So reach out. Don't knock on people's doors. People don't want to be bothered that way. But I like to send a letter that says, I'm trying to improve the lot next door. I'd love to meet with you at your convenience to go over my plans and get your feedback on it. When do you send that letter out? I do that very early, before even I go to the neighborhood association. Again, proactiveness. Be accountable and develop a track record. So if you say something, deliver on it. That, I think, is the most important. Stay true to your word. Your reputation is everything. And if you if you say you're going to do something, you better be ready to do it. And, and I don't care if that means going there 10 o'clock on a Sunday night to check on the site because a neighbor said, hey, I saw somebody there or the fence wasn't closed or the smallest stuff that might concern them is a legitimate thing. And if you go out there and show that you're going to do it, then they'll, they'll appreciate that. Definitely. All right. Uh, moving on. What is the most important thing agents can do to provide you guys value? One, I think, is understanding the basics of a pro forma. Developers are very busy, and when someone passes an opportunity, just sketch out what you think the opportunity is. If, if you don't know the construction cost, just make an assumption. You know, I carried about 200 bucks a square foot, whatever it is. And here's my projections for sellouts. Here's what I think you could get out of it. And make sure that the opportunity is worth someone's time to sit down and take it from that napkin sketch to maybe an Excel spreadsheet. In doing so, you'll save us immense time. I think that's my, my yeah. Thing. My, my I think my biggest pet peeve is when someone it doesn't even have to be an agent when someone brings me a, a deal and they just make it things makes up. No sense. Make yeah. or it's, it's just, just like where, how could I even get close to this acquisition? Or where do you even come up with these numbers? Yeah, hard costs are probably the biggest stumbling block, and understanding what developers are realistically paying is a big thing. And, and obviously it varies developer to developer, but that also comes with t- spending the time to understand the quality of the product that that developer is going to bring. You could have somebody that's going to build at 150 a foot, but I can almost guarantee you they're not going to give you the kinds of finishes that a 200 or 250 a foot developer is going to give you. And there's a big difference on the, on the back end for that too, right? Yeah, absolutely. So aside from screening out good opportunities, I think one other thing is just become you know our army if you understand what the developer wants to see, help figure out the criteria. For me, I like a big piece of land, something that's nice and wide. Help me find that. And if you do, that's business for you and, and we can work together. On, on Actually, on the developer side, to kind of go out of your way and show agents what you're looking for, Ray and I put together a one-page document that kind of highlights what we do, what we're looking for, very high-level numbers in terms of what returns we're looking for, et cetera, et cetera. And if someone asks for, you know, if someone approaches us and says, how can we work together? How can I help you? I say, well, this is what we're looking for. Here's our one-pager. You know, if you come across anything that you think fits in this criteria, reach out. So each of those points was Mm acquisition-related. Assuming you've landed the project and now you're going to develop the plans, finishes, and sell it, how do you guys think that a realtor can bring you most value? Two parts to that answer. The first part being, give us a realistic sellout, right? So Dan's an agent, he can run his own comps, but we always love to validate with an agent, especially somebody who's in the weeds and knows what what the markets are, and, and maybe they find something that we didn't see, right? So we like a number that we can work with and we can trust. So we always say, what's the worst case scenario? Give us a range. Like, what's what's the absolute fire sale price? And then what are we looking for for potential upside? Because now we need to pitch this to our investors. We need to pitch this to our bank. And if we don't get them on board and feeling comfortable, then the deal's not going to happen. And, and that's everything for us. And, on, and the second part of that is obviously, you know, the hustle. We are very big into 
the pre-sales and trying to get things under agreement so that once we get our CO, we can be out of there. So that's kind of our goal. And obviously, that's a nice to have. More important, obviously, is the first part of that answer. But I would say the nice to have is is if you have the network and the connections and you've got buyers ready to go, that definitely doesn't hurt. If you're just going to take the listing and throw it on MLS and take a bunch of pictures, I'm not interested. <laughs> I agreed. Do <laughs> you want to do the next one, Dan? Well, hold on, hold on. What do you want them to do? What? Instead of just throwing it on MLS, let's put you on the hot seat there. Well, I need. I mean, you need to have you need to have connections. You need to have a Rolodex. You need to have a marketing strategy. There's a lot of things that you can do other than just throwing an MLS because that's anyone. You need to differentiate yourself from everybody else because every other agent has access to MLS and every other agent has an iPhone that can take really nice pictures now. So I think this could be and will be an entire episode unto itself. So I'll defer the rest of these. Yes, two I, I agree. We'll bring an expert to join us, but I think that gives awesome. some of the uh, criteria. Given the record prices and low inventory, do you have any suggestions for the first-time home buyer? My go-to advice is that you can have what you want, but you can't have everything you want. And so make a list and decide what are your needs, uh, must-haves versus want-to-have, and consider what how to prioritize that. And perhaps you need to expand the geography of your search, or perhaps you need to forego the parking spot. Might not be in our self-interest to promote this, but maybe it's get your hands dirty and buy something that works, but the aesthetics of it aren't there. And so I like a replace in kind cosmetic renovation. I think those are fairly light lifts. And um, those are just a couple ideas. Best way to build equity, for sure. Yeah, I would say focusing on the first-time home buyer side of things, what's your objective, right? Is it is it a starter home? Is it a starter condo? If that's the case, then don't try and shoot for the stars. Don't go for like the highest priced uh, unit or the biggest unit that you can find. Find something that, obviously find whatever, whenever you're in the search process, find something that matches what your needs are. But also be prepared, right? So you want to go in there. You want to have a pre-approval. You want to have all your ducks in a row from a financial standpoint. You want to know what you can afford and try not to bite off more than you can chew. So that's probably the best way to do it. And, and short of Obviously, it you know kind of being a bidding war depending on the property type. Just be ready to fight, and and that might mean waiving certain contingencies or just going in with a higher over ask offer. It really depends, and, and and I think that's where you need to defer to your agent and get their expertise as well. Mark, actually, question: Do you how do you qualify your buyers? You know, I I usually look for just a pre approval. I'm not that. Crazy you call their lender? Things. No, but it's hard to give this answer being a developer and obviously having an interest in wanting to make the sale happen. But but oh. honestly, I think I think the you want to just be as prepared. You know, I'm an Eagle Scout, so the problem is, you know, <laughs> my, our motto is be prepared and also you know go camping all the time, right? So <laughs> you know, carry that pocket knife with you into the abandoned property. So my biggest thing is being prepared, and, and I take that to heart. Sometimes it's an Achilles heel, but essentially have everything that you need. And try to stand out from others. Absolutely. And I remember the advice for, for everybody, newbie or otherwise, is bid the value. I don't care what the list price says. Some of the best deals I've ever done, I completely blanked that out and just paid what I thought it was worth, which might be well more than it, than what it lists for. And so just be very confident when you're taking that swing. All right. So here's another question. Uh, I'm having a hard time finding new projects, but I see everybody else building help. So <laughs> I guess the question there is, you know, how are you sourcing projects? So we just had an episode with Justin Silverio from Open Letter Marketing. And I think initially we were going to just call it more of the direct mail kind of marketing, but it's more of a direct to seller marketing. There's a lot of different avenues, doing a lot of research online, trying to find out ways to generate off-market interest. That's one way to do it. 
That's the way that Dan and I generate about 40% of our, our leads. I'd say another maybe 20 to 30% of that is through networking. And then the rest of it is through MLS. That's another one, stale listings. Mark, you have some good success with that, right? Yeah, I think that um, oftentimes with a traditional listing, you can find value quickly. The first weekend it's on, maybe you're going to compete with people, but it's something that's going to sell on a single Saturday. It's probably because there's some value there. Or otherwise, sometimes wait. And if something's been on the market for a while, you can often come in. I always say, if you've taken the time to look at it and it's got a value to you, put the value on paper, present the offer, tell them, you know, you'll be around. Let me know. I don't care if the expiration says Tuesday night, just call me. This is my offer. And you'd be surprised. And you know what? To this question, I don't care what if everyone else is building. It doesn't mean they're all making money. Very true. Very true. Busy bodies aren't always profitable. But I, I would say also to add on to that, repetition is key. So you're not going to send out a letter. You're not going to make a phone call. You're not going to talk to an agent. And then immediately a deal falls into your lap. It's about follow-up, consistency. Those are probably the two biggest things, right? Bingo. And another good truism on this note is just uh, the best deal is often the one that you don't take. All right, let's go to the uh, next question. How do you remove personal emotion when selling your own product? And I think the corollary to this question is, should you sell your own product? I think that that goes into another conversation. <laughs> another diatribe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's hard, right? You learn as you go. And I learned that what you care most about, it's obviously money, right? I don't know. Yeah. Should we do <laughs> That's what I a couple, yeah. I didn't like this question. No. I'm not really sure how to answer this. So what's the best way to remove per personal emotion when selling your product? Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe just say, what's the best? No, mm, here we go. Yeah. As a developer, I don't have emotion about selling my product. As a developer, it's all, it's a business, right? I'm in the business of development, and it's different when someone is selling their house after 50 years of living there, and they, they're in love with the house, and you know they raise their family there, and they're emotional when selling. But when I'm selling my development projects, I, don't, I just don't get emotion involved in them. I, when I first started, I may have, but I learned very quickly that when you get emotion, emotionally attached to something, then you get more bent out of shape over certain things and critiques, et cetera. So I just don't, I don't think it's not worth it to me. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the right answer there is don't take anything personally. So if somebody comes through and maybe they feel one way about one thing, actually we had somebody come through and ask us questions about why we designed the bathroom the way that we did. And it didn't bother us. It's just everybody has different opinions and different ways they do things. And we're trying to cater to the largest audience. It doesn't mean you're, you're never going to cater to everybody. So never take anything personally if, if maybe the question's meant more towards uh, criticisms or, or whatnot. What is the best deal you have ever done? Um, so I'll start this one. Um, in terms of a percent return, I'm not talking about absolute return, like total dollars. I would say that it was a three-family that I purchased in Eastie. I bought it without a zoning contingency. Did that make you nervous? I wasn't terribly nervous because I wasn't hitting on any of the pain points for the neighborhood. I knew I had parking to give. My height wasn't excessive. And so I was pretty confident it could get through. And worst case scenario, it was like a stand-up uh, double. Uh, anyway, I got all the variances through. I paid 500 for the property, made about a 65% return. So to put it in perspective, my unit there I think is worth around 850 to 900 and it's free to me. Excellent. We had uh, an empty lot that we ended up, uh, two empty lots that we ended up buying put it in three units there. We sold all three. We didn't live in any of them. 
had a zoning contingency. We did have a zoning contingency. <laughs> we were nervous even with it just because it's Southie. But when we ended up selling it, we made about 67% on... Um, so how are we defining... Yeah, so I think percent. the way we're talking right now is you take the actual pre-tax income over the construction costs. And acquisition and soft costs. So you're all in cost. My all in costs are on the denominator. Oh, you're all in costs. Oh, well, I'll have to recalculate. Oh, it's going down. I was like, I was like, how can our number be that good? It's <laughs> <laughs> like that's a crazy number. So jumping back on that, just one point of note is that I like percent return on profits because projects slip on the margin. So I don't want to be enamored with a deal that has a return of a million dollars because if it's only 7%, well, projects slip, you know, when you when you make a mistake or you have a change order, they're commensurate with that margin at the end. So that million will disappear very quick, but your 20%, which is kind of what my gold standard is, is where I like to be because there's a bit of a buffer either way. Makes sense. Explain the difference between a condo and a co-op. Which is more prevalent in Boston and why? Signed, Mark's mom in New York. So first, mom, thanks for listening. And uh, Yes. Yeah. Thanks, Mark's mom. Congrats on the purchase of your guys' condo. So I, I think it's by and large a customary thing. I think there's many areas in the country actually where it's traditional that there's a land lease, a 99-year land lease. Um, uh, I was in Palm Springs, California, and that's uh, a very prevalent form of land ownership out there. And so condominiums, land lease, it's, it's maybe a function of when the buildings were converted over. Um, New York City, much older stock. And um, so it really goes to more of the technical, how you own the portion of the building, your unit. Yeah, I think it's something about condos or you don't actually own the unit. You own shares of a corporation which owns you mean the a, building. You mean a co-op. Excuse me, a co-op, yeah. And then the condo, obviously, you own that particular unit. There's a unit deed, that sort of thing. So we'll definitely need to have, need to have Mark back on. Or someone that lives in the New York area or someone that is very intimately involved in that. We have almost no co-ops. There are some in Boston. They're kind of a pet peeve of mine, though. They're almost like the last bastion of discrimination. Like, share a quick personal story about my sister and her husband have a young baby. And they're shopping for co-ops, and it's really difficult. The co-op boards, they don't want to hear a baby cry. Or, you know, you're elderly and have retired, and you can't show a W-2 income. It's it's just kind of yeah. Like, I've all, yeah, I've heard that co-op boards have to review buyers' financials and all these additional requirements before they're even allowed to buy into the co-op. It just seems un-American to me. In my mind, can you write the check? Yes, you can buy the the unit. I don't think I should have to sit for an interview so you can validate that I'll be a fit, whatever that means for the building. Mm, very interesting. We should anybody out there that wants to uh, talk about this, yeah. you're an expert. Yeah, send us Get a DM or, or reach out. More here. This Healy, is more interesting. Or, or AG, if you're listening, uh-huh. I, I think there's a and bonus if you uh, know what a condex, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, <laughs> is. I'd love to know what that one is too. I, I think I see some of that in New Hampshire. Could be a New Hampshire uh, thing. <laughs> Okay, so um, screening criteria you would use to find your first multifamily. Well, the first criteria that I would typically use is, you know, how is it going to perform financially? And obviously, you know, is it in a half-decent area? You want to look at that. You want to look at, is there potential for appreciation? Well, I always tell people, you want to see if it's going to better your financial situation. So if I'm paying $2,500 a month right now to rent, 
and I could buy this multifamily, rent out two of the three units, assuming it's a three-family. Is it going to improve my financial situation? And take into account all of the things. I assume you're going to self-manage because you live there. That's a reasonable thing to do. But after you cover your debt service, after you cover your maintenance costs and any other costs associated with that building, putting money away for CapEx, will it better your financial situation? And if I'm going to spend $500 a month, yeah, I want to save the $2,000 a month. If I've counted for all those other costs and I can save two grand a month, that's bettering my financial situation. So I may be paying out of pocket, but I'm happy to do so because I'm still saving money. But I wouldn't say just buy a multifamily to buy a multifamily. You do need to have some kind of interest in dealing with the responsibility that comes with it. You are a homeowner. You're a homeowner times three or times however many units. So don't just buy into it to say, this sounds like a good thing I heard about on a podcast. You you do want to understand that you are now responsible for other people. That's a good answer. Sorry if I took away everything. You guys no, no, that's great. <laughs> costs per square foot for construction costs. Like mm. how much do things cost you to do in the city? It's kind of a... It's all, you're all over the place because... The smaller jobs that have multiple units, you're still looking at, you're still to put kitchens in, right? So, and it depends on the finishes. So we're all over the place, anywhere between 175 and 325 a foot for, for things like that. 325 is probably a little Well, high, are you, uh, the other thing is, how, what are you basing your price of square foot on? Are you basing your price of square foot on net livable square footage? Or are you basing your price on gross square footage of the building? It's, uh, it's the numbers I gave were gross. net. No, it, it, construction costs. But I, costs. I also keep gross as well. Gross is obviously going to be lower. But that's construction costs. Typically, the, the industry follows gross. Yes. But sometimes you have buildings where there's very minimal common space. So, and, and what does a basement still. afford you? It just dilutes your number. So, I mean, I, I would argue that there's, you need to look Basements at it Basements aren't including ways. in gross, gross wood. This, yes, they are. Yeah. This is the most frequently asked question and never answered well. The actual answer to this takes a lot of nuance, right? My background is construction cost estimating. It's like when people ask me how much per square foot, I look at them and I say, how long is a piece of string? Exactly. I mean, there's infinite People give numbers, but they don't put context behind them. Infinite variables. But I get the question still. After I just railed on it, I think it's helpful. And I, I certainly lean on them or rely on them. And I keep a, a record, a historical index of every project I've done. Well, in order for you to do a high-level analysis on a project, you need to know estimated costs on what it's going to cost you to build it. You don't have to get into the details. I'll start with new construction costs. Okay. It's a new build. This is assuming you're not somewhere downtown, you have a little bit of space. I think the days of 175 a foot, I've heard people talk about 155, 160 are over. You will not build that new construction or renovation, frankly, for that. I think if you're building ground out for 190 a foot, 185, you're doing very well. I think if you have a GC, you're easily uh, looking more at 220 a foot. And if I'm between 190 and 225, I'm doing well. You can certainly spend 240 a foot to 260 a foot if you're delivering a really nice product in, in a more desirable neighborhood. If we're talking gross, we're in the two, we're in anywhere between 190 and 210. On your renovation costs, because you, you're not on a, talking on about a new construction, new construction ground, ground okay. up. Yeah, great. Somewhere that's, in that ballpark. So, so despite. But if I bring it to net, right, and I'll just show you the, the no, difference don't. between it's, the it's two. It's just going to confuse people. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> Do it. I feel bad. Just, just, just to show the fact that so on a smaller building, on a dollars per square foot net basis, the two hundred and eight dollar building was ended up being three hundred two on net, right? So two hundred eight gross, three hundred two net. Then on a larger building, it was one ninety two gross, 
but 256 net. So you're looking at very little difference on the gross side, but a much larger difference on the net side. And the reason I bring that up is because we've talked about efficiency of the building. We've talked about net sellable square footage. Our numbers are predicated on net sellable. And so I run it both ways and I look at the construction costs both ways. And I look to see how much variance there is between the two when we're doing a pro forma. I think one of the important things here is just that you're consistent because as you go, like for example, some later we're going to talk about how do you evaluate profitability of a project? To me, just as long as every time you look at a building and you do a building, you keep a similar formula, what you're able to do is see different pitches as they come across the plate and put them side by side by side and say, all right, that one, and my eyes are going to light up because that's a good one. So if, if you keep rejiggering the formula every time you do a build or go and look at a property on a Saturday, you're going to drive yourself crazy and you're not going to develop that historical context. Yeah, analysis by paralysis. So if someone was to approach you with a potential deal to partner on, assuming you are willing to partner, what criteria would you need? What analysis would you expect the person approaching you to have already done to consider it? That is a loaded question. I'll take the second half of that question. First of, first of all, let's, let me ask you guys, uh, Mark, I guess, uh, have you partnered on a project with anybody before? No. I know we have not either. Well, you guys are partners. <laughs> but no, that's we've, different, we've par- yeah. we haven't. I mean, we haven't really partnered with anybody. But talking about like a 50-50 partner, right? I assume that's where this question's going. Well, it comes up a lot. Like I, I, all right, so my, my quick thoughts on the matter are, I'll take the easy part of the question first. <laughs> what would you expect the person approaching you to have done already to even consider it? I would consider it, and I wouldn't care what they did for it. If they brought me a deal that was really good, and I could size it up on a napkin and say, that's excellent, I, I don't really care how, how much uh, homework you've done on it. I'll, I'll look at that. I think that's the easy half. And the second part, would you consider it, I think goes pr- from me, where my time is my biggest constraint, to opportunity cost. So do I have another deal in the hopper where I can make with 100% of the profits, and is it a great deal, or I have really very little going, and this is an excellent deal with a lot of fat on the bone, in which case, sure, I'd love to partner with you. Yeah. How about roles and responsibilities? Who's going to do what? Okay. You brought me a deal that's worth X. What are we going to do going forward? And how are we going to keep ourselves from essentially killing each other? (laughs) Because you don't need seven cooks in the kitchen, right? So I I think that's our biggest challenge. Like, Dan, you don't go in the numbers and I don't go in design. So what would that person do? Personally, I don't think we would do it. If someone wants to partner, they'd have to be a silent partner. And I don't think being a silent partner deserves 50% of the deal. I think if someone came to you with a nine-unit build that uh, they just stumbled on and it's a great opportunity and the profits are 65%, I'm just making stuff up. Um, <laughs> you didn't make up that number. <laughs> um, you'd be, talk about it. I would, I would talk about it. I guess it depends on, you know, if I'm going to be running the entire project and I'm, it, it depends on if. I, depends, I apologize. It, I misspoke. We have done one, right? We have. Yeah. Yeah. And it depends on the deal. It depends on what the other person's bringing to the table. If they're poning up half of the cash, okay. If they're not poning up half the cash or they're coming up with part of the down payment and we have to be on the hook with the bank because they are not qualified. I mean, there's so many variables that it's just hard to just say, okay, I'm going to give you 50-50. So it really just, it's going to be, a, it's going to be on a deal by deal basis. You just said something very important which is when you said pony up cash, 
hard and fast rule with partnerships in my mind is dollar for dollar equity. I will never give someone 50% of a deal who doesn't have 50% of the skin in the game. It's just, I don't want to see the ship start to list and you go, I know I'm a 50% partner, but I only got 15% in this one and good luck. (laughs) Right. I, I agree. And second one is always before you partner, just ask yourself the specialty or the expertise that that person you're bringing to the deal, perhaps they're a contractor, perhaps they're a design professional. How much would it cost to hire that person otherwise? How much would it cost to give away X percent of the equity in the deal? So to your earlier point, like what's a deal worth to you? If it's a good deal, isn't it worth it to do it? Like you said? It is. I don't, I don't care if the, it, well, except for the equity thing. I don't know if I'd bend on that. Right. Yeah. So if someone, here's a hypothetical, if someone brought you that amazing nine unit deal with 65% return and they just brought you the deal and they don't have any skin in they the game, no credit, they have no they credit, have else, yeah. they have no cash, blah, 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 blah. What would you think is a fair? Everything is negotiable. I would never say no, but I would never go into that deal 50-50. I would okay. perhaps think about some sort of equity for bringing such a, a great opportunity. Agreed. Okay. Fair. Cool. All right. Hopefully that answered the question. This one comes from our good friend, Tim Romans at Imperial Kitchens and Baths. So what advice can you give a small supplier on how to work better with big developers? Tim, thanks for the question. Don't annoy me (laughs) so much. I'm serious. If you want my business, don't have to email me or call me or whatever 700 times a month. That's, I'll never do business with you. Never do business with you. Uh, Wasn't that the appliance person that did that for you? Yes. Yeah. I'm not going to, obviously, I'm not going to name names, but it was an appliance per. A, a, a it compliance, wasn't Tim, though. It was not Tim. <laughs> there was an appliance. That's what I was just making sure. It wasn't Tim. <laughs> there was an appliance company, a local appliance company, that I think the guy called me multiple times a week, multiple times a week, and bugged the shit out of me to, like, you know, are you, do you have another project? Are you ready for, to, to hear my quote? I've never done business with them. I just... Sometimes sales marketing is too much, huh? Don't be so aggressive. That's fair. I think another point is we talked about deliveries. We have so much stuff hitting the site. It can be anarchy. And to the extent that you can help me have some predictability and when the product will arrive, help me understand the lead times, stick to those lead times. So keeps the job moving forward at a predictable rate. And then when it does hit the hit the job, don't just leave it on the sidewalk. Like tile? Yeah. Thousands of <laughs> or pounds. Or pallet of, of mahogany. <laughs> yeah. Moving in 5,000 pounds of tile is, is fun. I would say another big one is service after the sale. It's great to deliver your product, right? But inevitably, we're going to have something go wrong. Something's going to break. There's going to be a piece missing. Just make it easy for us to follow up and get that little challenge fixed because there's a million little thorns that happen on any project. And Dan, you, you, you of all people could speak best to this from our side. Kind of what grinds your gears on, on that sort oh, of side? Customer of service is huge, obviously. The follow-up. If something breaks or if there's a walkthrough or something's wrong with the product and I need to get it fixed ASAP, having that in my back pocket and being able to just call you up and getting that fixed within days, you know, is huge. It's just, it's huge. Let's see. Here's a good one. Market shift is coming. What are you doing to prepare within your company? So this is obviously the million-dollar question. If we all had the magic eight ball and could tell us when it was going to happen and 
Crystal ball. Yeah, crystal ball. Crystal ball. I think magic eight balls just spit out random things. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's pretty much what it's like sometimes. You shake the eight ball and you're like, oh, well, you know, not today. Recession, not today. We personally have been getting a little more um, selective on our acquisitions. Just let's just not try and get caught with our pants down, that sort of thing. Well, let's just go back and say, you know, you should be conservative enough, conservative enough in your underwriting that you can account for a decent size shift in the market. So if you're underwriting a deal, and I know we underwrite how we underwrite deals is we always account for a 10% market hit. So from the time we acquire the building to the time we dispose of the building, we can we still turn a profit if the market takes a 10% hit? And if the answer is yes, then we know we have a good deal. Yeah. yeah. So I think the technical term for what you just described is a sensitivity analysis. So I think it's very important to look at your sales numbers on a continuum and see how it performs at various stages. Also do the same with construction numbers. If there's an unexpected thing in your budget that causes a big glitch, how does the job do? Yep. That's one. And two is I, I run the deals as rentals. It's a worst case scenario as well. If I end up being a landlord, whereas I wanted to be a, a condo seller, how does that look? Can I still hold it? And we've noticed some banks underwriting the same way. As lenders have gotten a little more conservative as well, they're underwriting the deals the same way. If, if we can't sell them for some reason, do they cash flow? And that that's probably a kind of a tougher nut to crack in some of the markets that are more expensive, especially where your acquisition costs are, are pretty high. And I think we're, it's safe to say we're all being a little bit more selective in terms of our acquisitions. Uh, hopefully when it does happen, it's not the end of the world. It, you know, we, we'd like to think that Boston's pretty well insulated, so... 10% is pretty aggressive, but there are some sub areas within Boston itself and, and within obviously the suburbs around Boston where 10% could be realistic. So just be prepared and just be conservative. Is it crazy to try to put together a deal for a condo conversion where I find investors to cover 20 to 5 to 30% and finance the rest through a, a traditional commercial lender? I would not be putting money down but finding the deal and doing the analysis. Any advice is much appreciated. Thanks for reading and keep spreading the awesome real estate gospel. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening. I think the answer to that, the quick answer is yes, it's worth it. If the pro forma and the spreadsheet says that at the end you'll have a, a profit after paying all of those people, which is sufficient for your time and energy to get out of bed and to execute that project, then 100% go for it. We're doing it. I mean, that's basically our bread and butter business. Ray and I learned early on, Ray, Ray can talk to more of the numbers, but we learned early on that in order to grow and to scale, we couldn't fund all of the projects ourselves. I mean, the with the market the way it is in Boston and we're spending a million dollars in acquisition and then a million plus dollars in build costs, you know, if we had to put 25%, if I had to put two hundred fifty dollars to $300,000 down for every project and I had four projects going on, you know, I, I'd have to come up with $1.2 million plus my holding costs, plus my carrying costs, plus fronting the construction costs before I can get a reimbursement from the bank, from our lender. In order to scale, we had to raise capital from private investors. And I know, Ray, you can talk to more about, about the numbers. Yeah, I mean, two words, intelligent leverage. Leverage is not a bad thing. I think people get scared of that because of 07, 08, what happened there, because banks and uh, investment banks were doing crazy amounts of leverage, like, you know, multiples that were double digits. 
that's a whole different product. That's not what we do. You can still leverage yourself as long as your loan to value and your loan to cost are within reason. So if you're still, if you're leveraged up to 100% of your acquisition and your hard costs, it's not a bad thing because if your sellout is above that, you're still below 100% in, in theory. Smart leveraging and learning how to scale and, again, being conservative. I mean, I'll, I'll make a very obvious statement. I think it bears repeating is just the reason real estate is such a phenomenally profitable investment at times is because of that leverage component to it. Even on your most basic deal, you're going to finance 20% and a bank's going to give you 80% on this premise or 70-30. Imagine if you had a stock that you were going to pick and you called up a bank and said, I want to go in on IBM at 100 grand. I'll put down 30. Will you give me 70? Absolutely not. So, But the contrary point to that, which is sometimes forgotten, is that when the stock slides south, you will lose your shirt that quickly. So that's why you need to be conservative. Run your numbers with that sensitivity analysis and keeping that always in mind that yeah. when it goes south, you go south hard. This is why when we're working with real estate agents, we ask them for these scenarios. What's the worst case scenario? And those are numbers that we put in and we trust and we, you know, we validate as well. But I think you got a nail on the head there. It's it's absolutely I don't think there's much more we can say about this. What return metric do you prefer? Return on cost, etc. What is your target return? Cash on cash return is one metric, but it's not a very good metric for us because of the items we just discussed, how sometimes we're leveraged up to 100%. <laughs> Your cash on cash. Infinite. <laughs> it's amazing. It's, impre- it's impressive yeah. for PowerPoint, but it yeah. doesn't really mean anything. We prefer... Um, cash on cash is a good metric for rentals. Cash on yes. cash is great for rentals, yeah. yeah. And debt coverage ratio, fantastic, which is you know how much above the debt servicing you, you're bringing in. And banks will typically look for 1.2 times. So, But for a project, we're generally looking for pre-tax profit over gross sales. And we're looking for around 15%, which is what we've averaged. Some are lower, some are higher. That's the average we're looking for. I personally like pre-tax profit over total development costs, which would include acquisition, soft cost, and hard cost. And I like that number to be 20%. Any reason why... You don't like the number that I said, and to be honest, I just learned about your metric tonight, so I'm going to start using it a little bit more to calculate things. What was your metric again? Uh, pre-tax profit over total revenue. So essentially a gross margin. What's your total total revenue? Is all, just what you, all, all, what you sell it for before any of your expenses. All your sales. Yeah, just all your sales. Over how much you made on those sales. Okay. Oh, no, what you made over this, oh, what you made pre-tax over what you sell it for. Nice. So usually about 15%. Again, I think that uh, another important factor is just to be consistent in how you look at deals. So every time I look at a deal, I use that same same method, and I can pretty much look at three different deals and tell you which I think will perform. Do you ever look at numbers in terms of your all-in costs on a dollar per square foot? So say you can sell something for 600 a foot, and you say between hard costs, soft costs, and acquisition costs, I'm going to be in for like 450 so my my margin is 150 a foot times however many sellable feet I have. Do you ever look at it that way? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Nice. And I also do a fairly poor job of segregating soft costs and hard costs. They always seem to lump together in my mind and my spreadsheets. (laughs) It's just the cost of the project. 
Hard cost is just construction. It should and, be. And everything else is soft cost, right? Yeah. And Minus theory, the acquisition. But somehow my QuickBooks is always just like pumping out <laughs> one number at me. And I'm like, I think my construction cost is here, but I'm fairly certain that includes a lot of geotech reports and civil engineering fees, et cetera. Do you have a bookkeeper? I do. I use a, a bookkeeper. Well, the, the ask, reason ask I'm asking is, the reason I'm asking is, do you have the bookkeeper put your budgets and everything into QuickBooks somehow? Or is it you just give the book, the bookkeeper data, they give you the data back, and then you're running analyses in your own Excel or whatever you have? I run my analyses on construction costs in Excel, but my QuickBooks isn't set up quite that granular. It's not the best platform to be tracking construction budgets. You can, but there are other tools that are better. I do use a bookkeeper. I engage her help more on an as-needed basis. I paid my bookkeeper to train me and help me set up a system so I understand it and how to use it. And 90% of the costs I can categorize and put in, but there's always those couple weird transactions where you're just like, I need help so I can phone a friend. Yeah, I have a bucket for that. It's called miscellaneous. (laughs) (laughs) Code 162. (laughs) But it goes to a good point about being a small developer, which is wear all the hats. You know, if you... It's, it's how you avoid being vulnerable, as if you know all those things. Someone can get hit by a bus at any moment. You got to know how to pick up the pieces. All right, another question. Bank appraisals, thoughts on their accuracy? I feel that generally they are decent. It's very, been very interesting. As of late, we've run into issues with some appraisals on some of the stuff that we've been selling. Um, one example is we sold a unit and the appraisal came in at 40000 Like $9,000 <laughs> more than... We had developed a building next door selling the same unit. And then... Are we talking about the same building? Yes. Then we sold the same unit a year later and they appraised it for 9000 more even though it had an extra parking space. It was a year later in an upmarket and... <laughs> had higher end finishes. <laughs> higher end finishes. I think that's an outlier. Generally, I think that appraisals will tell you if you're within the realm of reason. They will tell you if you're way out in left field low, getting a great deal or getting a terrible deal. But for mm-hmm. the most part, they, they come in where the number wants to be. But for my part, for the most part, yeah. For yeah. my part as a seller, I always am overprepared for an appraisal. I will show up with a manila folder with my own comps, listing information, a sales floor plan and I just want to make their job as easy as possible. <laughs> what if you're not what if you have and you've hired a broker and they're doing I'm a control freak. This is one of the most important things to me is the getting the appraisal back so the sale can continue forth. Do you I, think they know what you're doing and trying to influence them? It's it's not quote unquote quote unquote um yes, but I think they actually appreciate it and I'm thoughtful and I'm not cherry picking or using anything that's deceiving. It's just it shows that you care. I know my neighborhood where I'm developing and I know all the buildings that have been sold and bought around me and I'm going to know them better. So I'm going to pull what I want to show to support my sale. Well, you know what pisses us off is appraisers that, especially in the city, go like a mile out. You go you go half a mile any direction. Different you're neighborhood. A whole different, you go a couple streets over, it could be a different neighborhood. Appraisers that don't know the market probably are the number one distraction to a home sale. Agreed. I had to purchase air rights for a recent project and had to have the airspace appraised. <laughs> Wait, what? Uh, what yeah. comps did they use? It was, it was crazy. <laughs> Where did they pull the comps well, from? What does that even mean? Uh, appraise the air rights. So I had to purchase the air rights from the city. This was space that I was building over a public way. 
they basically used it was it was interesting. First of all, it cost three thousand five hundred dollars for this appraisal. Very specialty field. There was like three guys in the city who could do this, and um, it wasn't that complicated in the end. They just sort of looked at land costs and figured out what you would pay per square foot for raw land, entitled and unentitled. It was what is it like an easement or it's literally like how, how, what do you put on the deed for the air rights or how do you put it on your plants like is it it's yeah. past your lot line it is so it's it's called a vertical discontinuance in this sense hmm. where your air rights start a certain height above the sidewalk in this case yeah i was just going to say so dumb it down so we're talking about like basically extending over a sidewalk yeah this was this was a deck that was built out over a sidewalk so it starts a certain height above the sidewalk and it extends out a certain area and uh, it's recorded at the Registry of Deeds, no different from any other deal. And on your condominium site plan, where that bump out occurs, it's noted, plan and book page, purchase this date. So you're paying the city of Boston? Mm-hmm. Interesting. How much did you pay them? It was worth $9,000. What do you think your return on it was by adding that? For open deck space? Without those air rights, I could not have provided outdoor space without making serious sacrifices to living area. So huge. Huge. What do you look for when purchasing a multifamily rental? Oh, that's a good question. There's a couple things we look for. I would say first is a metric known as debt coverage ratio, which I alluded to earlier. It's essentially how much more free cash flow you'll bring in over the debt service. So if my mortgage is going to be $1,000 a month and I'm bringing in $1,200, I have a 1.2 debt coverage ratio. So that's what banks will typically look for is 1.2. So we look to get that up as high as possible. The other metric is free cash flow. So while we may not necessarily care as much about cap rate or cash on cash return, we look at just how much money the building might bring in right off the bat or through any value-add activities that we can um, achieve and then kind of go from there. Cool. One last question. Affordable renovation details that add a lot of value to rentals. Kitchens and baths. Extra bedroom. And extra bedroom. I especially like extra bedroom in the city where it's a lot of young professionals sort of team up to afford the rent. So if you can carve out a massive bedroom or a huge living space that can afford a, uh, you know, convert a dining room into a bedroom, all of those ways are to juice your rent by $1,000. I mean, some people have said to a month. Do you have a cap? Uh, obviously, you can't have more than, what is it, four unrelated people in the city or five unrelated people. Is that the rule? There's a rule called three's a crowd, and it relates more to Alston Brighton near BU. Um, My point is, would you go from yeah. three to a four? Yes. Okay. Anywhere? Anywhere. Question for you guys. What is one thing that you would like to see more of in real estate development and one thing you would like to see less of? I would like to see less deals brought to us where people are banking on ridiculous appreciation. And I think I would like to see more people pushing the envelope from a design build standpoint. What do you mean? Just kind of pushing the boundary, using new products, just not using so like not using so much hardy, like that type of thing. You know, let's be different. Let's just not be boring. Something that I'd like to see more of in development is gratitude, just people being gracious and and, and humble. And uh, something I'd like to see less of are ceiling fans. Just personally, not a fan. Oh God, where do you see those? Just see them. I know people who really like ceiling fans. 
Ugh. Ouch. On that note, Ray, Dan, thank you guys. Yeah, hey. I think this has been good. Keep the questions coming, guys. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for subscribing. We really, really appreciate it. Yeah, feel free to push us questions anytime. We're going to do these episodes periodically. So I hope it was beneficial. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you on the next episode. Adios. Cheers. Cheers.